0: So, we've been in a series in the letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, for several weeks called The Gospel for Life, is the name of the series. And so, we're just going to do a quick review of where we've been because the first huge chunk of this letter is uh, Paul's narrative about why he's writing this letter and and a defense of the accusations that were being made. So, uh, looking at, before we get into today's text, which starts with verse 11 of chapter 2, we're going to do just a quick flyover. Uh, from 1.6 to 2.10. So in 1.6 to 2.10, that's verse 6 of chapter 1 through verse 10 of chapter 2, we've seen Paul expressing his shock that uh, they have received another gospel. They're turning to a different gospel. And Paul says, really, a different gospel is no gospel at all. The gospel, as we've been summarizing it, as Paul summarizes it, and as we'll see repeated again and again in different ways throughout this study, is something like this. Uh, The gospel is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his death and resurrection. So that's the gospel in a nutshell, and it's that from which they were deviating. Uh, Paul was saying that there were some infiltrating the Galatian churches. Galatia was a region in what's today modern-day Turkey, where he had uh, evangelized on his first missionary journey. And uh, they were bringing a distorted gospel. And Paul says, he has very harsh words, that anyone who distorts the gospel deserves to be cursed by God, to be condemned by God. Because if you're believing in a false gospel, that doesn't give you eternal life. So that's why Paul is being so harsh in his uh, condemnation of the false teachers. So Paul has to defend himself because what the false teachers are doing are trying to make Paul out to bring, bringing a, uh, not the whole gospel to the people of Galatia. They're saying that he brought a weaker gospel an easier to embrace gospel because he was saying it's gospel, law-free gospel, no necessary other Old Testament law unattached free gospel. And so they were saying, no, that Paul's not telling you the whole truth. And so Paul had to defend himself, so he spends a lot of time doing that in this first couple of chapters. So he says that he received the gospel by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He, didn't, he was not a subpar apostle who learned it from other people. He got it directly from Jesus. Paul said that he was sold out to Judaism and persecuted the church until he met the risen Christ. So in other words, everything in his background was against him believing this gospel, this gospel that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Everything in Paul's prior life would say there's no way he would have ever uh, embraced that gospel had he not encountered the risen Christ, which he did on the road to Damascus, Syria, while he was in route to go perse- persecute Christians. And then Paul says he didn't consult with other apostles for three years. And then after three years, he briefly met with a couple of apostles, uh, Peter and James, brother of Jesus, And then after that, he kept preaching the gospel in Gentile regions for the next 11 or 12 years, and then Paul goes to Jerusalem to present his gospel to the apostles, James, Peter, and John. And he did it not because he doubted that he had the true gospel, but he was fearful that because that gospel was being so threatened uh, by additions to it, he wanted to make sure he had not been in vain trying to accomplish his mission, and he thought the mission was threatened. So he wanted to be sure. I just want to make sure who I'm dealing with here. Are we on the same page with the gospel? He, he came with the uh, assumption that they were, but he wanted to make sure. And even in the process, he took one of his Gentile uh, companions, Titus, and there were some false Christians who had snuck in and tried to persuade or tried to manipulate the apostles into forcing Titus to be circumcised. Now, I promised last week I used the word circumcised probably about 500 times, more times than you ever need to hear it. But that was such a big deal there in the early church uh, because that's one of the big add-ons they were trying to add on to the gospel because it had been the sign of the covenant with the old covenant people, people of Israel. But it didn't belong with uh, any necessary acceptance with God and the gospel. So, uh, Paul, the good news was that the other apostles didn't yield in order to preserve the gospel for the Gentiles. In other words, they acknowledged that Paul had the true gospel. They were unified in the gospel and so James, Peter, and John said, Yes, we affirm you in your mission to the Gentiles. We are on the same page. We'll continue focusing mostly on the Jews. You, work on, you, you bring the gospel primarily to the Gentiles, and we're agreed in that. So that brings us up to where we are today. And where we are today is uh, Peter shows up at Antioch. Now, before we get into the text, we'll read the whole text in just a minute. Um, we need to just give you a background on what Antioch is. So Antioch was a city in Syria, still there today. At that time, it was the uh, third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it was uh, first evangelized by Christians who were scattered due to the persecution of Stephen. From the start, it was a mixture of converted Jews and Gentiles. And the Jerusalem church, when they heard that converts are being made, uh, sent Barnabas, who was a a really encouraging guy, down to check out the work. Barnabas saw the grace of God that it was... uh, the grace of God was on the move there, and he went and sought the apostle Paul to help out with the work. So he, this is the first recruitment of Paul into the, the work with other apostles. And the, the, the disciples were first called uh, Christians in Antioch. And then later, the Antioch church sends a famine relief gift by Barnabas and Paul to the Judean churches. So they were unified. They were working together together and soon after their return, the Antioch church sends Barnabas and Saul on their first mission trip. So they're a mission-oriented church. And then they return to Antioch after the mission, reporting how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So this is a great church. It's um, a mixed-race church. It's a model church. It's missional. It's a multiplying church. What could possibly go wrong? So let's look at today's text and see what crisis, gospel crisis, erupted there in Antioch. Looking at chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, 11 to 21. But when Cephas, otherwise known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So when Peter comes to Antioch, Paul opposes him to his face. What for? What was going on? Why did Peter stand condemned, according to Paul? Well, Peter says, or Paul says, and here's the issue: before some men from James came, James was one of the apostles, he was the brother of Jesus. Peter was eating with the Gentiles. This was a huge deal back then because uh, Gentiles ate a lot of unclean food, which, by the way, I, I kind of value some of the Old Testament food laws because I, I'm not big on eating eels, owls, or bats, or buzzards. So I kind of agree with at least the practicality of that. They don't serve those things at McDonald's any way that I know of. And in fact, so were the Gentiles themselves considered religiously unclean. Uh, because they were not circumcised and they didn't follow the law. Uh, earlier, God had called Peter to go to, uh, to go to a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And through dreams, God had shown Peter that he should not call any person unclean. And so Paul or Peter went with uh, Cornelius and his group. He preaches the gospel to them. And then many of them came to Christ. So after that, some other Jewish believers challenged Peter for eating, the uncirc- eating with the uncircumcised guys. Uh, Peter defended his going to the Gentiles and eating with them as, because God had revealed to him that that was wrong and that that had all changed with Jesus and that the cleanness law is no longer applied. So God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he did. For the Jewish believers, Peter said... So what happened to this same Peter who was so freed up to to mingle with and eat with Gentiles and even seeing them come to Christ that he would now begin withdrawing from Gentile fellowship, Gentile Christian fellowship, when the Jewish party showed up? How could Peter be pulling back from the very things God had taught him that he himself had defended? Well, the sad truth is this, that old traditions die hard, old prejudices die hard as do things that we believe give us religious superiority over others. If we feel that something gives us a notch on our belt up above someone else, and we've been practicing that for years and years, and we've had a whole culture developed around that, that's hard to let go of. And And then also the fear of man. So Peter feared what they might think, the Jewish party that came down from Jerusalem. So the news about the gospel going to the Gentiles was known by all, including the Jews from, from James who came down from Jerusalem. Many of them had no doubt rejoiced over that. But when you get that group think going together, that kind of group think, well, what would they think? What if, you know, and they just default back to their old ways. So what they needed was for the uh, for leaders such as Peter to set the example of fellowship with Gentile believers as fully accepted by God and Christ. Instead, Peter began giving in to fear based on old religious divide between Jew and Gentiles. So the pull of religious tradition and distinctions that that are thought to make one group more favored by God than another, more correct by God, is very strong. And the results of Peter's withdrawal from the table fellowship was poisonous and spread quickly. You see that in verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So even the Jews who were part of the church in Antioch who had already been enjoying, they had already practiced, uh, it had been their habit to join together both Jew and Gentile across racial lines and to uh, enjoy fellowship together. But even they began acting in hypocrisy along with Peter due to his bad example. When when Paul says that they were hypocrites, what that means is they knew better than what they were doing. It's not they did it in ignorance. They knew it was wrong, but they just went with the flow. They followed Peter's example. They acted as if it was right to withdraw from table fellowship with the Gentiles when they knew this was regressing to old ways. But the biggest heartbreak for Paul had to be Barnabas. It says, even Barnabas, my my mentor, uh, the one who had recruited him into working with the expanding mission to the Gentiles, that was centered in Antioch. He's the one that brought Paul to Antioch in the first place. Even Barnabas got carried away with the hypocrisy. He was led astray. He was carried away. That's why we can never assume that we have arrived in, in living in line with the gospel. We can never assume that we've arrived, that we're all there. We've always got that old pull back into old, old divisions, old ways, or ways that we've in the past uh, marked ourselves as being more spiritual or more godly or more holy than others. We have to fight against that to the death for life. Um, Our attitudes, our convictions, we need to be constantly refreshed in the gospel. They need to be grounded and driven by the gospel. When it comes to anti-gospel prejudices that are part of our past and our culture that can spread quickly, especially those in roles of influence, compromise gospel convictions, and no one was more influential than Peter. That's why Paul had to publicly rebuke Peter. You see that in verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So when Paul saw that their conduct was not orthostep, right-stepping, when he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... Not straightforward, not in line, not consistent with the truth of the gospel. He had to rebuke Peter because his example was leading every, everyone else, including Barnabas, to acting in hypocrisy. So what, what uh, Paul says to Peter is, even though you are a Jew, Peter, you've been living like a Gentile by eating and having table fellowship with them. That's what you've, you've embraced that freedom. And that is right in line with the gospel. How then can you force, how then can you compel the Gentile Christians to adopt Jewish customs as if that were necessary in order to be acceptable to God on equal footing with Jewish Christians? How can you do that? Now, circumcision was not wrong. It was okay to be circumcised. Uh, Following Old Testament food laws was not wrong. What was wrong was communicating by your actions that those who practiced them were more acceptable to God than those who didn't. So what was at stake was the gospel itself and the mission to the Gentiles. So this was no minor thing. There was no mere difference of preference or opinion. This was a gospel crisis. Because Antioch was now a Gentile mission hub and the Jerusalem group uh, was influential. Peter was influential. So everything was at stake here in terms of the, the progress of the gospel. Anybody here, so we're getting older, some of us. Anybody here remember the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s? There's like a few of us who are willing to admit that we go back that far and that we we were old enough to remember that. Uh, So some of you recall that when hippies began turning to Jesus in mass numbers, you might be aware that Calvary Chapel, now there are many Calvary Chapels, but Calvary Chapel, then founded by Chuck Smith, was instrumental in uh, seeing many people come to Christ, many of the hippies come to, to Christ in that situation. And who knows whether the movement would have spread like fire as it did if they had not accepted the long-haired, shabby, dirty, and smelly hippies into their church. That's what we're missing here, long-haired, shabby, dirty hippies. Come on, more, more of them. So I've heard this little story, uh, and I've heard it enough where it must be true, but it goes like this. It's about a hippie who entered the first Calvary Chapel in the very beginning of the days of the Jesus Movement and he comes into the church where everyone is dressed in their suits and dresses and everyone is clean he's grungy, long haired, smelly, barefoot and uh, he keeps walking to the front of the church and all eyes are watching him as he slowly walks up to the front of the church sits down on the floor by the front row Uh, then from the back comes an old deacon surely he's going to remove this hippie who obviously doesn't belong here at church So everyone's watching, the deacon finally stands over the hippie, then shockingly, the old deacon sits on the floor next to the hippie. Who knows how influential this one man was in the Jesus movement to have the courage to walk in line with the gospel. And in case that story is apocryphal or legendary, uh, the church that we, our family, moved from before we came here in Port Angeles, Washington, Independent Bible Church, there was almost an identical story that took place the hippie's name was Jim, and the uh, the old deacon's name was Chuck. Chuck was like a Barnabas; he was a son of encouragement. Uh, Jim goes walking up to the front of the church, sits down. Chuck follows him, sits down with him, and Jim uh, later comes to Christ and becomes an Awana commander, which, being translated, means a children's ministry leader. So you never know what walking in line with the gospel is going to do, either if you don't walk in line with the gospel, or if you do. So what are the ways that we can be out of line with the gospel? What are the ways we can be out of step with the gospel? Maybe, we're, maybe we don't have a problem with that, huh? So some of the ways that that can happen is our way of doing church has us on God's most favored list, right? Our way of doing church is right, and everybody else is subpar. That would be an example of a non-gospel-centered attitude. Or anything that's like this, any bad attitude in in church among Christians toward others based upon race, and don't think we're not free from that today, or based upon uh, church background, or social class, or political persuasion, or marital status, or personality type, or anything external about us, that causes us to pigeonhole someone and marginalize someone and say, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a notch above them spiritually. Anything that we put the notch in our spiritual belts and say, this makes me better than someone else, especially in the body of Christ, is a non gospel lined up attitude and life. Um, music style, taste obviously, the music that we choose to do here is the right way to do it, right? Just the right blend. Some of you would rather it be this way, some of you would rather be that. That's okay to have preferences, but we don't make it like a superiority thing. You know, we may be able to stand being in the same building for an hour and a half with people who have these different persuasions, but, uh, but we won't have close fellowship with them. Or if we see them in public or at school, we avoid them. So there's dozens and dozens of ways that we can be out of line with the gospel in our attitudes and our actions. Anything that we would hold on to to say, you are not worthy of God's favor as I am. We need to root that out and bring it under the light of the gospel of Christ. You know what's most scary about this whole passage to me is that people who well knew better, who had years and years of being at harvest—I mean, being at—you uh, know—knowing the gospel and preaching the gospel—still gravitated back from it when the chips were down, when they when they are in the wrong environment. Um, So that's scary to me. Even people had promoted and defended that the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone means that all have equal need for the gospel and that in Christ there are no first-class versus second-class Christians. We need frequent gospel reminders. Peter, by the way, he gets it right at the Jerusalem Council, which comes after this. He then defends the gospel of grace. And so Peter repents. Peter is a, a good repenter. He may sin big, but he repents big as well. So if you're going to sin big, just make sure you repent big. And that is part of the gospel, is it not? The good news is Christ saves us. We keep responding. We, we, the gospel exposes our sin. We keep turning back to him again and again. That is part of the benefits of the gospel, opportunity to keep repenting toward Jesus. So the, the, the last half of this text is all about Peter's reasoning behind this gospel equality, walking in line with the gospel. So it's the theology behind his criticism of Peter. And we don't know for sure how much of this he told Peter directly and the spot. Probably some of this he did, or how much he was doing it for the benefit of the Galatians. Probably a mixture of both. So let's see, in verse 15, Paul is saying to Peter and the rest of the Jews, even though we were born as Jews into the privileges of the old covenant relationship with God, and we are not as the Gentiles... That is, sinners was no access to God's covenant. So there was a distinction. The Jews really did have a covenant relationship with God. But uh, Paul couldn't be any clearer or more confusing in what he says in verse 16. He's either really clear here or kind of confusing because he repeats the same terms over and over again about the basis of anyone, Jew or Gentile, being made right with God. So see how often he repeats in verse in verse 16, the words justified, not by works, but by faith in Christ. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now that's a lot of the same words, so let's talk about what Peter means here. Or Paul means here. Now, because a person is not justified—that's a word we're not supposed to say without defining—because we don't use it normally in everyday language—it means, biblically, it's talking about being counted righteous before God, being made right with God. He says, uh, "We're not counted righteous before God, not made right with God by works of the law, not by any efforts to be good or religious or spiritual, but through faith in Jesus Christ." He's and to to them he was saying. So therefore we Jews also have believed in Christ Jesus. Why, he says, to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works. Paul could not be any more clear. Nothing about, nothing about who we are and what we do justifies us, makes us be counted right in God's sight apart from Christ. Absolutely nothing. That's why we keep saying the gospel is we are saved, we are justified, we are counted righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, he could not be any clearer. Not by works, but because by works of the law or any self-effort whatsoever, no one will be justified. No one will be counter-righteous. So here's a really crass example. Uh, So you're checking into heaven, and you say, Hey, uh, I've got credit. I've got Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover. Your credit is no good here, but my credit is up to date. It's not good. It's not good enough. That's not how it works here. But I've got all the major credit cards with thousands of dollars of credit. You're rejected. Instead, if you come with the posture of being poor, all I've got is Jesus, you're in. And so no credit accepted, no human credit, but Jesus' credit, 100% guaranteed. So in verse 17, Paul uh, says, Paul is answering the objection here, That if the only way to be justified, that is, counter right with God, is to know you're a sinner and declare bankruptcy, that you have nothing to offer God that will earn His salvation, nothing that will merit His uh, right standing before Him, then is Christ a servant of sin. That's what he's saying. But if in our endeavor, this is verse 17, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So does the fact that you only receive a right standing from Christ and um, and cannot, no matter how hard you try to be good enough to outweigh your sin with your good, and that's our basic religious posture, is it not? Somehow I'm going to outweigh my sin, my bad with my good, and I'm going to um, win the day by, by outweighing my bad deeds with my good. That's basic human religion. That's, every religion in the world has that kind of view. You won't qualify unless you admit that you're disqualified. It's not like how we compose our resumes, right? Our cover letters. We really boost ourselves. We, all the good stuff and beyond the good stuff that we've actually done. We just really are told to you know, make, put the best face on it. And in order to be qualified to be justified before God, you have to put the true face on it, which is, I'm disqualified. There's nothing I have to offer Christ that can merit God's salvation. that can merit a right standing. So Paul's saying, no, that doesn't make Christ a servant of sin. That's like saying the doctor, diagnosing your disease... Is the one causing you to be sick. It doesn't work. We must believe in a God who justifies the ungodly because that's all He has to work with. Every person ever born, whoever has lived, is ungodly, unjust in God's sight. Which leads Paul to what he says in verse 18. Uh, Paul says, this is kind of confusing. What's he talking about here? In verse 18, If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What Paul is saying to Peter and the Jewish Christians is, if you insist on mixing the gospel of justification by faith in Christ alone with law-keeping, you will only be proven to be a transgressor. If you mix grace and law, you only get law. If you mix grace and self-effort, you only get your efforts, which don't add up to justification. And with law, you only get condemnation for being a sinner. The law can't pay for a sin. It can only point it out. The law can't remove guilt. It can only increase and declare your guilt. So don't try to rebuild the law. That's what Paul's saying. Don't try to rebuild. That was torn down in Christ. If you try to rebuild that and say that's how we're justified, then you are only, you're going to get what the law, the only function the law can do for you is to condemn you as a sinner. That's all it can do for you. It cannot justify you at all. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for you precisely because you didn't and because you couldn't. So no doubt, then, one of the main reasons the Jewish Christians who came to Antioch and the gospel-distorting teachers that were in the Galatian churches thought the law was needed, at least in addition to grace, was this. If a person is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, given a right standing with God by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Does that mean that they can have their sin cake and eat it too? That's the huge objection, isn't it? You're saying that we're justified, we're counted right before God by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone by His righteousness. Doesn't that give you a license to do as you please? Hey, I'm off the hook. So in verse 19 and 20, Paul addresses that. In other words... The question is, what is the motive to live for God if law-keeping has no part as a basis for my standing before God? If if what I do doesn't count toward my standing before God, uh, then what uh, motivation is there for me to obey God? Can I just take my ticket and cash it in and, and live any way I please? Well, what Paul says, rather than the law being the way I live for God, the law became the means of my dying to the law. That freed me from its condemnation, that I could at last live to God, that is, be alive to God and to live live for God. That's why Paul says these confusing words in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. And that's because the purpose of the law is to drive me to Christ, and through Christ I die to the law and can live to God. So verse 20 explains more what he's talking about. And so he says three more things in verse 20 that, that explain what, it, what did he mean, through the law I died to the law. All right, first thing. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ historically was crucified 2,000 years ago. But in God's grace, what he did for us, the way I died to the law is that when I received Christ by faith, I was united by grace with Christ in his death so that his atoning death for my sins against God's law became my death with credit for his atonement. It was a great exchange. My sin for His atoning death, His atoning death for my sin. So, the law, so therefore the law has no claim over me because Christ fulfilled it and His fulfillment of it became mine. So I've been crucified with Christ. Secondly, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what Paul's saying there, from now on, I no longer live on my own righteousness and in my own power to please God. It doesn't work. It fails 100% of the time. I didn't have a righteousness of my own, but Christ does. I couldn't live for God and please Him in my own power, but Christ always lives for God and gives me the power to do so. So I don't try to keep the law to live for God, but Christ in me enables me to live for God. So that's what Paul means when he says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is my life, He is living the life I could never live through me and in me. And then the third thing that Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So yes, I still live in the flesh. I'm still in the weak, fallen flesh. Until I'm resurrected, I still have sin battles. But uh, I, I, I have died to the law as a way to be right with God and to live for God. Instead, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me while I was yet unwilling and unable to keep God's law. He wasn't waiting for me to measure up to the law because I couldn't. Instead, he gave himself for me me to free me from the penalty of the law, the power of sin, that I might live to God and for God. So this is the answer to the question, where is the motivation for obeying God if our law-keeping is not even part of the basis, it's not even a fragment, it's not even one ounce, one gram of a basis of my justification before God what then is my motivation for obeying God we've died to the law through being united with Christ in his death our lives are no longer just us but Christ living in us and we live by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us we have a living relationship justified in Christ and Christ is at work in our lives that's how we obey God that's why we obey God now freed up from meriting because we couldn't do it and freed up to live through the power of Christ in us. And then that brings Paul to his closing comment in here, in verse 21, where he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So somehow the gospel-distorting teachers that were there in Galatia uh, thought that God's grace came through law as a means of salvation. Actually, this is the way many think of of uh, religion today, is it not? This is what those who come to your door will say. Yeah, we're saved by grace, but we also have to keep God's law and, or terminology like that. Uh, you do your part to please God. He knows you're not perfect, so He makes up the difference by grace. That's not the gospel. But the gospel is that we are gifted a right standing, 100% right standing before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel. My righteousness is what, totally in Christ. It's not a fragment of it in me. So if Paul was to go along with the attempts to add law to the gospel, whether by explicitly by teaching as the gospel-distorting teachers in Galatia were doing or by going along with the gospel-distorting hypocrisy of Peter and the others in withdrawing from the Gentile Christians, he would have, in effect, nullified the grace of God. Any mixture of fallen human effort or goodness as contributing to the basis of right standing before God nullifies and validates God's grace in our lives, in our salvation. For if our righteousness is based in any way on our law-keeping, on our own goodness, our own self-effort, our own spirituality, our own seeking our inner divine spark within us, whatever, however we define it, then Christ died for nothing. He died needlessly, for no purpose. That that means that the only way that we could have been forgiven, counter-righteous, is Christ's death. He died not because we... We needed a little help. He died because we were absolutely helpless and we needed a Savior. And that includes stop saying things like this. You know, God can forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. I say, really? Is that true? So the atonement of Christ is not sufficient for you to forgive yourself. Your forgiveness is more fundamental than Jesus. That's not the gospel. Let's quit talking that way. Let's quit thinking that way. Let's be freed up to to completely count our righteousness as being in Christ. Conviction about sin, yes, but uh, saying that my forgiveness is contingent on me forgiving myself, wrong. God's grace, again, was not just a little help that basically good people needed to be better. I'm just going to make a comment here. Walter White desperately needs the gospel. If If you're watching Breaking Bad, maybe tonight... He'll come to Jesus. I just tuned into that for the last... I don't recommend the show is really harsh, but it's very gospel-less. Absolutely no gospel whatsoever in that show. But Walter White needs the gospel. Huge way. So pray for him. Uh, God's grace was not just a little help that basically good people needed to be better. His grace was that desperately guilty, eternally lost people who deserved only condemnation, until we come to that place, we will not want the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. Until we admit that, we will not want the free gift of God's grace. We deserved only condemnation. We could only be rescued by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who died the death that we should have died and was raised again to provide the life we could never, ever have lived apart from God's grace. So this truth kills both self-righteous, spiritual superiority, and and it gets us off the religious treadmill running and ladder-climbing to deal with enslaving guilt or to earn God's favor. It gets us off the religious treadmill of running and ladder-climbing to deal with enslaving guilt or to earn God's favor. No more ladder-climbing, no more religious treadmill, uh, completely trusting in God's grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone to save us. And to justify us and to live as a justified sinner. Period. But we keep doing these things, so we need the gospel every day of our lives. We stop being addicted to other things, be addicted to the gospel. You need it every day. Let's pray.